Hey everybody, this is Ernie Johnson, and welcome to EJ's Game Plan. It's your guide to working in sports media. Today we'll be talking to Ryan Glassbeagle, a reporter for Outkick Media. Hey, this is Ryan Glassbeagle. I'm live now, if anyone is watching. I guess I'll just start now. So um, my name is Ryan Glassbeagle. I am a writer. I spent the last six and a half years at The Big Lead. And, and starting next week, I'm going to be writing at Outkick the Coverage, which is Quay Travis's website. I actually wrote there a couple times when I was just getting started in about 2012, I wrote a story there about how Brett Bielema, um I was really happy when he left the, to um, Wisconsin to coach Arkansas. And I also wrote a story about um, watching a Packers playoff game at a wedding. And so now about eight years later, I worked um, in between at SI.com and then the big lead for six and a half years. I, um, now I'm going back to work for Clay starting next week. So I guess I'll start. Um, I graduated University of Wisconsin in 2009. I was a major in finance. I didn't study journalism at Wisconsin. I, When I was a first semester freshman, I wrote a few stories for the Badger Herald. Right away, they had me writing about the football team. So I wrote like a profile on Owen Daniels and Jason Posiak, both, both of whom who became NFL tight ends. And that was really neat. But after probably three or four stories, I applied to be the um, beat writer for both men's hockey and then also to be the beat writer for women's hockey. I didn't get that. And for some reason, I got discouraged and just flat out stopped doing it. So I majored in business at Wisconsin. I graduated in 2009, which was just like the absolute worst time to be a college graduate with the possible exception of right now because it's in the middle of the financial crisis and there were just frankly no jobs. And so I worked at this like kind of private equity intermediary for four months and I found out that that was just about uh, intern sweatshop and it's not really very um, edifying experience. It did help me though, it made me realize that I didn't want to work in an office. And so for really the 10 years since then, I've been working from home and that had me really ideally suited for everything that's going on now. I mean, I, there was a story in the New York Times a couple weeks ago where the writer said that being in isolation a lot of hours a day and facing a lot of rejection really prepared him for this time. And so... The um, anyways, I a after I did that private equity internship, I worked for a company called Defy Supply, which was an online furniture company. Um, I worked there for about a year and a half. A friend of mine got me the job, who had also went to Wisconsin and studied business with me, and they um, that that really wasn't a. Uh, also for me. It was an interesting experience in the sense that I got to go 
to China twice for work, and I really did learn about how online business is conducted, but for a variety of reasons, I wound up being the sounding board for customer dissatisfaction, and that really wasn't um, kind of what I woke up in the morning and aspired to do. And so at that point, I had about, I don't know, six months of savings from a year and a half of working there, and I just decided to quit that and start blogging. And so for about two years, I wrote my own blog, which was called sportsreport.com, um, it's the same URL as my Twitter handle. And then after that, I so during that time, I, I blogged, I blogged football, whatever kind of my opinion of the day was. It wasn't a lot of original reporting, but I did do some freelance reporting for a variety of different websites. I wrote a profile on a now defunct hot dog restaurant in Chicago called Hot Dogs for a website called The Daily Meal, and that led to a bunch of work doing slideshows there for like, I don't know, the best chicken wings in America or the spiciest food in America and things like that. And then I wrote a long story, about 10,000 words on medical marijuana industry and policy and in Colorado for Huffington Post. And that was really an early look at the marijuana industry that's now proliferating in a bunch of states in America now. And then I did a, a thing for a site called The All, the AWL. It was an interesting site in the early 2010s where um, they collected work from writers that writers couldn't get really published anywhere else. And it didn't necessarily pay a lot per story, but it got your work in front of smart people. And so I wrote a thing there on the expected return on a $1 Mega Millions ticket when the jackpot was $250 million. And I found out that the expected return was something in the neighborhood of like, I don't know, 70 or 80 cents. Um, I got discouraged a lot in those two years and frankly a lot of times wanted to quit but in the end it like it did really prepare me for eventually finding work in the industry. The, there were a few times I mean there's that um, song by Darius Rucker thank God for all I've missed because it led me here to this there were a few jobs that I applied for in that time, like healthcare consulting. And I wanted to go work for Epic, which was a company in Madison that was doing really well. Uh, I got to final round interview, didn't get that job. And I just extremely thankful that I didn't because I don't think I would be on my current path. So eventually after two years, I got to si.com. The, the way that I got there was pretty interesting. So my dad grew up in Wisconsin, and every time he sees somebody who's wearing like a Packers or Badgers or Brewers or Bucks apparel, he says, oh, go Badgers, go Bucks. And so in New York City, he said, go Brewers to a guy wearing a Brewers hat. That guy wound up being Neil Janowitz, who at that time was an editor of ESPN, the magazine. He became my editor at SI.com, and now he's the editorial director at Vulture, which is New York Magazine's um, culture vertical. And so when, right after my dad met him, I wound up writing maybe a 20-word story on a YouTube app that wound up being in the front of the book 
of ESPN the magazine. But shortly after that, they uh, moved the ESPN magazine offices from New York City to Bristol, and Neil didn't want to go to Bristol, and so he left his job there, and I lost that connection. But um, just about two years later, Pat Summerall died, and Neil had just started at SI.com running the extra mustard vertical. And that vertical of SI is basically everything that has to do with sports that isn't coverage of the actual games. And so he wrote a quick tribute to Pat Summerall that included his call of T.O.'s catch against the Packers to famously beat them in the playoffs. I think it was in 1998, maybe it was in 1999. But my dad happened to notice the byline and he said that I should reach out to him. And I kind of put it in my, okay, maybe I will, maybe I won't folder of ideas. Not necessarily that I had that written down, but I followed Neil on Twitter and just said, kind of made a mental note to maybe call him and maybe not. And so this is probably about a Monday or Tuesday. And at that time, I'd actually gotten to a site called Chicago Side Sports, which was a local Chicago site that is now defunct. And I wasn't really loving it, but it was my first steady job uh, since I had quit the job at the furniture company. And so I, I did, that was why I didn't reach out to Neil, but it, on that Friday, they told me that, okay, you're a budgetary constraint at Chicago's side, and uh, I'm sorry, but we got to let you go. And I was really discouraged. I thought I was going to just leave the industry, do anything else, any type of normal job that had a lot more security than um, sports journalism did. But literally the same day that I got let go from Chicago's side, I had an email from Neil who had clicked through my bio on my personal sports report blog, seen some of the stuff I'd written at the all. I'd also written a couple of things. This was at a time where Deadspin was taking um, user submissions. He also read the stuff that I wrote for OutKick. And so he literally brought me on to SI.com that same day that I'd got and let go from Chicago's side. So that was pretty... Um, lucky circumstances. And I wound up writing there for about eight or nine months. It was, SI didn't quite have the issues that it was having now. Um, back then, this was in um, 2013 at this point, but it definitely was uh, an organization that was losing some of its market share and so forth. And there wasn't really a path for me to become a full-time writer there that could uh, make a self-sustaining living. And so I was starting to, after about seven or eight months, I was learning a lot. I mean, I really do think that that time at SI was probably more valuable or at least as valuable as like going to like Northwestern or Columbia to get a master's in journalism because I had somebody who was really smart and sophisticated line editing everything that I was doing. And so I, I was ha thankful for the experience, but it also wasn't something that it was going to be sustainable. And so I started emailing around looking for work. And one of the people that I emailed was Jason McIntyre, who was the founder of The Big Lead and at that point was still there. 
And so Jason responded to my email within an hour that he was familiar with my work. He couldn't necessarily hire me full-time right away, but he said that he would get me weekend shifts, and if I was any good, he would work on USA Today, which owned the big lead at the time, on getting to bring me on full-time. And so he, he kept his word on that, and in about two months, I was a full-time hire. It also helped that I went on just an absolute hot streak of blogging at SI. So it, it's a weird thing with writing. It's kind of like being a baseball hitter or a jump shooter where you get hot and cold and sometimes you have a bunch of ideas that all come together at once and you've got a week where your output is enough to really carry what you should be doing for two months. And sometimes you have a month where you're like, man, I don't even think I put forth a week's worth of good work. And so I went on a hot streak at SI. One of the big stories that happened was it was at the, I think it was the Sugar Bowl. Maybe it was, it was a different, it was a bowl between Alabama and Oklahoma. And all of a sudden a video went viral of this Alabama fan mother, like getting restrained from a fight against an Oklahoma frat boy. And she's like, I'm cool, I'm cool. And then as soon as the person restraining her had let go, he went and did, a, or she went and did a flying drop kick on this Oklahoma frat boy. So I, I blogged that video at Extra Mustard and I put it on my Facebook and then somebody messaged me that he was a frat brother of the Oklahoma person who got kicked. And so this was like a story that, I mean, it was a video that everyone was tweeting because it was viral and it was hilarious. And it was set to like Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. So we saw what was happening, but we didn't really know what the context of it was. I wound up reaching the kid who got flying drop kicked um, on the phone that day. He told me what happened. I published it on SI and it went like, it spread like wildfire. I had a couple other stories at SI that week that were pretty big and interesting, but that was the main one. But at the same time, I was doing part-time for the big lead, and McIntyre was kind of going crazy that he wanted to bring me on full-time, but he couldn't yet. And my stories that he would have loved to have on his site were going up on SI. And so he really pounded the door and got USA Today Sports to open up to bring me full-time. And so I wound up going from making about $1,200 a month to making $4,800 a month in the span of a week. Like just my, my salary quadrupled and all of a sudden I was making $48,000 a year and I had a living wage, which after three years since I'd quit the furniture job was really exceptional. And so I fit in right away at the Big Weed. They had a really good, good group of people. Michael Schamberger, Stephen Douglas, Ty Duffy, Mike Cardillo, Jason Lisk. Um, Kyle Coster was also there doing weekends at the time. So was Tim Ryan. And so I fit in really well right away. And I mostly just did like standard blogging, not a ton of original reporting. Occasionally I would reach like Bob Ryan or somebody like that for a Q&A, but I wasn't doing a ton of working. It was most just reaction and commentary. Uh, my big break at the big lead, I guess, was when I got the story that Bill Simmons tried to trade for Katie Nolan. It wound up being that like he, he saw Katie Nolan as a rising star who he thought was going to waste 
at Fox Sports at the time, and he like ESPN and Fox arranged a trade. Like ESPN was going to send Ian Dark to Fox, and Fox was going to send Katie Nolan back. Fox was just getting into the World Cup, and having Ian Dark call it would have been a big coup for them. So as much as they wouldn't have wanted to. Um, throw in the towel on Katie, who did eventually go to ESPN anyway, um, that trade made it almost palatable. But then at the last minute, Fox also wanted Marty Smith, and that's where it was a bridge too far from ESPN. They didn't want to send one of their really rising reporters, as well as somebody who is very adept at calling games to Fox for Katie Nolan. And so the trade fell through. I caught wind of that, and I reported that, and all of a sudden... I became a known entity in kind of sports media circles. So I did that. Uh, I also was doing some really long form features about interesting people from sports media history. I did something on Howard Cosell and why he became disillusioned with sports. I did something on Peter Vesey. I did something on George Solomon who ran the Washington Post sports section. I did a piece on Dick Schaap. All of these were really interesting pieces and got a lot of critical acclaim. None of them did like gangbusters traffic, but they helped me build a lot of relationships that I would eventually use in my reporting. And so I was doing those at the same time I was doing blogging. I also launched a podcast called the Glass Half Empty Podcast. This was in 2015. So there were a lot of podcasts then, but it wasn't anything like there is now. It was still more of an open marketplace where if you brought something, you could get notoriety for it. That's not to say you can't get notoriety for something now, but it's a lot more difficult than it was in 2015. So I had a lot of interesting guests. I had Dan Lebitard, I had Scott Van Pelt, I had Frank DeFord, I had Michael Wilbon, um, eventually Ernie Johnson, Rachel Nichols, on and on. A lot of the really interesting names in sports media I ended up having on. And then I even had players and coaches. Like I had Urban Meyer, DeAndre Hopkins, David Ortiz, like a lot of real, like Dustin Johnson. And so I got some really intriguing names and I also got some up and comers on there and that started to take off a bit. And then eventually Jason got his job at Fox Sports. And so when he got his job doing, originally he was on Speak for Yourself, which at that time had Jason Whitlock and Colin Cowherd on it. He relinquished his media reporting beat and really kind of just bestowed it to me. So he introduced me to a lot of his sources and connections and really kind of fed me stories for a period of six months to a year where I was getting stuff that um, were really, really high level original scoops. I got um, Colin Cowherd leaving ESPN for Fox. I got, um, like, I, I had the story that Chris Carter and Trent Dilfer were going to be off Monday Night Countdown and that Randy Moss was going to be joining it. I got the story that, uh, I got the first story that the NFL asked its broadcast partners to have their reporters not tip picks before the draft, thus ruining it on Twitter. So I had a lot of big stories that eventually led to stories that I broke on my own, which was like I broke the story that 
bar stool was for sale and in advance talks to sell to um, a sports gaming operator, which wound up happening a couple of months later when Penn National Gaming acquired it. I broke the story that ESPN had 538 for sale. I broke the story that Michelle Beadle was leaving Get Up and was going to be the full-time host of NBA Countdown. So I, I started to get a lot of stories around, I'd say, 2016, 2015, 2016, 2017, that um, made me a little bit, I mean, I'm not necessarily known hugely in the public marketplace, but within sports media circles, these breaks got me a lot of notoriety in addition to my podcasts and the features that I was doing. So I was also still doing just normal blogging, like reacting, like, oh, this thing happened in a football game, let me talk about it, or things of that nature, and media commentary and whatnot, um, just opinions about, okay, here's what ESPN should do with their lineup, et cetera, et cetera. And so I did that for six and a half years, and around the Super Bowl this year, Clay Travis reached out to me and said that he was going to be building up OutKick the coverage, which, as I said before, was a site that I've been following since he launched it in 2011. I wrote a couple of stories for it in 2012, and the um, when he over the course of maybe like a month or two, he eventually put together an offer that I thought was really compelling to get me to go. I'm going to be working with Bobby Burak there, who's another media reporter who I've worked with at the Big Lead for a couple years, as well as Michael Schamberger, who was the producer for my um, Glass FMD podcast, as well as some videos that I was doing. I also forgot to mention one of the milestones I had at the Big Lead with videos was I sold a package to Kingsford Charcoal to get them to sponsor my podcast and get them to sponsor a daily Periscope series um, that was um, really well received by them. And so I'm excited to work with Schamberger on stuff like that again at OutKick. About a year ago, USA Today sold the big lead to a company called Minute Media. And that was a pretty dramatic experience because um, McIntyre, Jason Lisk, uh, Michael Schamberger, and then a couple other writers who I was pretty close with, like Vic Choksi and Tully Corcoran, got let go in the transition. They wound up keeping me, Bobby Burak, Kyle Coster, and Ryan Phillips. Uh, Minute Media, I, I was not obviously thrilled when they got rid of all of those people that I had been working with because for the time, the big lead had been a real family. And so to take half of it away was really jarring. But I do have to say that once they did that and once my feelings about that um, kind of faded a little bit and the other people landed for the most part and got new jobs. Uh, Minute Media did treat me really well. So my leaving the big lead for OutKick, I don't think that should be construed as an indictment on Minute Media so much as Clay Travis just came and made what I thought was a really compelling offer, both creatively and um, financially. So now I'm going to start answering questions. Julian Winters asks, what writing technique do you use that others may not use? You know, I don't know if there's necessarily a technique. 
I do think that there is a ton of value in original reporting. So as I said before, I built a niche in sports media coverage. There are other people who cover sports media who do a really good job. Um, John Orand at Sports Business Journal, Mark Burns at Sports Business Journal, Michael McCarthy at Front Office Sports, Andrew Marchand at the New York Post, Richard Deitch, who was at SI forever, and now he's at the athletic and then some people like awful announcing does a good job covering media there are a lot of places that do it but i still also think that it's an undercovered niche compared to the amount of people that are interested in it so i would say right now espn has about 50 to 60 percent of the market share of the proverbial sports conversation and then you start to go down the list barstool sports is relevant Bleacher Report is relevant, Yahoo Sports is relevant, but you, you add up all those, now you're probably at 80% of the market share of the sports conversation, but those places don't cover sports media, and the people who are in sports media are really gigantic stars. Like, I always say, I think more people would recognize Michael Wilbon walking down the street than DeMar DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan is an NBA champion. Uh, Michael Wilbon has been on TV for 25 years. So the people who work at like ESPN and even now like Turner Sports, Fox Sports, CBS Sports, and even Barstool now, I think that they're more famous at the top level than all but the most famous athletes. Now I'm not saying that the people who work at Barstool are more famous than like Tom Brady or Peyton Manning, but I really do think that on the streets of New York City, more people would recognize um, Dave Portnoy than, I don't know, let's say like the Jason Tatum. Like it, it's a, a, you might see Tatum and see that he's really tall and presume that he is an athlete, but I don't think that you'd necessarily know him by face in a way that people watching this and other people in the public would know who Portnoy is. Um, and so I guess what like I have to say is, as far as a writing technique, it's more of a reporting technique where if you can find an angle where the public is more interested in it than the coverage is, then I think you should go for it. One of those spots right now is eSports. Like, do I think that like eSports is the next NFL or anything? No, I really don't. But at the same time, some of these like, the Overwatch Championship or something like that can fill an arena or you'll go on Twitch and you'll see hundreds of thousands of people watching somebody play Call of Duty. And so I think like that the public is more interested in some of these esports stars than they necessarily get coverage. Now, it's easy for me to sit here and say that you should go and cover esports because like, frankly, I'm not really interested in it. The idea of watching somebody play video games, to me, is insane. But if you're looking to make it as a reporter, like, if you say, I want to get to ESPN or Bleacher Report or something like that within the next four years, if you cover esports and make yourself an expert in that, a lot of places are going to be in the market for writers who do that. Um, does anyone else have any questions right now? Not quite. So um, I guess going back to, um, out, okay, what was the process for developing sources being brand new to the sports media beat? So um, 
I didn't have any sources when I was at SI.com. That was really like purely blogging. Now there were a couple like um, original features that I did. Like I reached out to the San Francisco 49ers and wrote about the app that they were doing at their new Levi's Stadium to like have uh, food and beverage delivered to seats. But I wasn't really sourced in the sports media beat. My first break at the Big Weed in sports media came from my parents, actually. They were at some function in Connecticut where Jim Calhoun was speaking, and he said he was going to work at ESPN, and um, that hadn't been reported yet, so I figured out what his number was, called him, he confirmed it, and I broke that, and then I broke the Katie Nolan trade, which, as I said, um, McIntyre helped me a lot with that story. I guess it's really interesting about how you go about cultivating sources. You, you gotta just be, um, to use a word, annoyingly persistent, which is um, the, uh, if you do good work on a site like The Big Lead, where, which I was like fortunate enough to inherit um, the fact that the site already had a reputation for media news and media commentary, and Jason McIntyre had a lot of those sources, himself, you kind of get instant credibility just by virtue of having that platform. But if you go and find um, it, the, the, the best way to cultivate sources, I think, is through um, publicists, like because PR people are trying to do um, mutually beneficial transactions in the way that they place stories. Now, so, like, this isn't necessarily to say that they'll leak something to you, which might happen, like, on a rare occasion, but for features, if you can, like, prove to a PR person that you're going to give um, a person who works at their outlet an honest shake and write something interesting about them, then they're going to really appreciate you as somebody who is like on like a bit of a like two-way dialogue. And so for features, um, getting to know PR people everywhere is really helpful. I also, I, um, I, I always, this always stuck with me. Um, I don't even remember where he was talking about it, but I saw an interview with Adrian Wojnarowski several years ago, at this point he was already the king of the NBA beat, but it was kind of like a question of how he got there. And he answered it, which was essentially that when he was at Yahoo and even before that, when he was at local papers like the Bergen Record, he became um, connected with people on the bottom rung of NBA coaching staffs, on the bottom rung of NBA front offices. And over a 10 to 15 year stretch, those people became, um, became leaders and like head coaches and general managers. And they remembered that Woj gave them the time of day at a time where other reporters did not. And so they kind of became like Woj people. And so in, in like sports media or any beat that you're on reporting wise, if you can kind of like try to look five, 10, even 12 years into the future and figure out who is going to be big in that area later and kind of latch onto them early, that pays big dividends. Somebody asked, what's the best piece 
of advice somebody gave me. So I was sitting across the table from Seymour Siwap, who was the founder of Elias Sports Bureau, which is the official statistician of all the major leagues. And if you see like any, almost any stat that gets passed along on a broadcast, it's like really esoteric, like, oh, this is the first time a pitcher homered twice in a game since, I don't even know, like Dontrell Willis, I don't know if he did that or not. It's just a hypothetical example, but like this is the first time somebody did that since he did it against the Yankees in 2004 or something like that. Anytime you see a stat like that, it's a good chance that it came from Elias, which has been compiling those for 80, 90, 100 years. But I was sitting across the table from Seymour, and he frankly he said, don't go into sports media, become an accountant. People always need accountants. So that wasn't the part of the piece of advice that I listened to. But he said, um, make sure that you have an angle. His angle, well, Elias's angle was that they saw the um, rise of stats coming before anybody else saw the rise of stats coming. And so, the, the the have an angle thing really stuck with me for a long time and I kind of realized that I followed that advice by going into the sports media beat. Um, anybody else have questions? Um, so I guess I'll continue to talk about um, kind of what our plans are at Outkick the Coverage. So as I said before, Clay hired me, he hired Bobby Burak, he hired Michael Schamberger. There's some more um, hires coming. They're not public yet. I'm not a thousand percent sure that they're finalized, but I mean, people look at Clay and I understand why he's polarizing. And I understand that he isn't for everybody, but he really is putting his money where his mouth is right now because um, you see like all of these shops, like SB Nation furloughed everybody for three months. SI just had cuts. Like there's pay cuts everywhere. There's furloughs everywhere. There's job losses everywhere, not just in sports media, but all across the media landscape as um, the coronavirus really ravages the advertising industry online, on television, etc. And um, Clay easily could have, like, we agreed to this the, the week before Rudy Gobert went down with coronavirus. And so um, he, um, like, Clay is putting his money where his mouth is. So here's another question. When assigned or voluntarily given a challenging story idea, how do you inspire yourself to write? That's a really good question. There's not necessarily an easy answer. I don't really get writer's block anymore. I'm really good at drafting things that I plan to write in my head, but as far as like trying to like buckle down and do it, I don't know. Like this isn't some advice that you can follow right now, but if I'm struggling to get started, then maybe I'll go to a coffee shop. Maybe I'll go and eat a cheeseburger. Um, if I don't know the answer to something like that, the real, the real answer is just keep 
reporting it. Make phone calls to people that you trust that are smart. Maybe they're not direct sources on a story, but maybe there's somebody who is in the industry and has smart sensibilities. And if you don't know exactly a way to say something, like call them up and say, like first text them and say, hey, do you have a minute to talk? I'm working on a story. I want to bounce it off you. See what he or she says. Another thing um, that you can do when it's challenging, if you're lucky enough to have an editor, this is, a, I don't even know who gave me this advice, but when you find a good, smart, talented editor, like I had with Neil Janowitz, like I had with Jason McIntyre, Jason Liss, Kyle Coster, etc., when you have like a really good editor, just latch on to him or her and milk them for everything they've got. It, it's, I, I do think that the edit, editing has kind of become a little bit of a lost art. Um, I don't know that outlets necessarily value editors as much as they are valuable, but if you can find a job where you have an editor who can really like help you, help get you out of a knot when you're struggling to think of something or help like fix a sentence that is run on or could be made more concise or anything of that nature. If you can find a good editor, they're worth their weight in gold. Well, I appreciate everybody who joined this. I appreciate Ernie Johnson for the, <coughs> excuse me, for the invitation for this. Um, I did kind of um, neg him earlier in the week where I said, I wish that he would have people who don't work in TV on the show, but um, he, he, to his credit, he messaged me right away and said, hey, you don't work in TV, do you wanna come on? And I immediately said yes. So um, this thing that Ernie is doing is really cool and I do hope that people watch it every day, not just when I'm on, but anybody who is interesting, really, like he's had directors, he's had producers, he's had people who make highlight cuts on this show and so, Anytime that you can um, like get advice from somebody who's gone through this like that, I think that you should do that. So once again, I'm Ryan Glassbeagle. I'm going to be writing at Outkick the Coverage beginning next Friday, May 1st. I spent the last six and a half years at The Big Lead. My DMs are open, so anytime anybody has any questions, please reach out and ask for advice. Thank you for tuning into this episode of VJ's Game Plan. For more information on today's guest and breaking into the sports media industry, go to our website, www.ejsgameplan.com. Tune in every week to hear from more guests on their experience in the media industry. EJ's Game Plan is brought to you by Ernie Johnson Jr., the University of Georgia's new media institute and Grady Sports.